You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice, director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University, and you are listening to the Religica Theo Lab at the Center. In the last few years, we've noticed a rise in heat waves, floods, droughts, tropical cyclones, wildfires, and other climate-induced natural hazards. We've seen it in our local communities. I drove this past summer from Albuquerque, New Mexico, my hometown, back to Seattle, and it was smoky all the way due to forest fires. That's not an isolated experience. Many of us have experienced this in our local communities all around the world in one form or another. And we thought it was important in this month at the center where we are focused on the religious response to climate change to talk with Iyad Ubumogli, who is the principal investigator and advisor for the United Nations Environmental Program, following a series of initiatives and conventions organized in partnership with faith-based organizations around the world, the United Nations Environmental Program launched what's called the Faith for Earth Initiative in November of 2017, and Iyad is the one who directs that initiative. In our conversation today, we're discussing a triple planetary crisis, what our moral responsibilities are in the next seven years on the planet as we face a 1.5 degree rise in global temperatures by 2040. We're discussing also the hope of youth and the international conferences taking place in the fall of 2021. We will be discussing what we're terming religious multilateralism and al-shura, a consultative process. But above all, we're treating the environmental crisis as a spiritual crisis first. That is to say, we bear a deeper spiritual and moral responsibility that has to be addressed and that no restorative effort of the external climate around us will suffice without a comparable first assessment of our own internal well-being, both as individuals and with one another. Take a listen. Thank you so much for joining today. I want to talk a little more about who you are and, and what you do beyond the title. I mean, here we are in the fall of 2021. Your work is ever more critical. For the listener, Iyad, will you please explain what your aims and outcomes are beyond the title? Thank you very much, Michael, for giving me this opportunity to speak to you and to the audience and listeners. Well, I mean, I have a title as the director of the Faith for Earth Initiative of the United Nations Environment Program. And many would ask, why would a UN agency working on environmental issues work on religious issues? But if we consider what the global community, the international community, as humans, but also as a planet, are facing, we are facing tremendous challenges, let alone the other socioeconomic challenges. I'm focusing on environmental challenges. Our climate is changing, and that is causing a tremendous impacts on all environmental resources and on the people as well. 
our ecosystems are being destroyed for the sake of providing development resources for better socioeconomic development of the people. And we are witnessing increasing pollution and waste being generated. So what we call the triple planetary crises, constituting a complicated and complex situation to deal with. Now, of course, there are international conventions, international policies, and working with all stakeholders. And we do have what we call the global agenda, Agenda 2030, and the Sustainable Development Goals to address all of these issues, putting people at the center, living in a healthy planet, enjoying peace and prosperity, but doing that in partnership. And this agenda, of course, some consider it to be the agenda for countries or governments. And it is not. It is an agenda for everybody, whether it is stakeholders, private sector, civil society, religious organizations, or individuals. So it is important that we mobilize all sectors of the society. And we have a sector of the society that has two important powers that we are overlooking, which is the religious community or the spiritual community or faith-based organizations. The first power they have is the power of outreach. They exist, religious leaders exist in every corner of the world. You would find an imam or a priest or a monk in every corner of the world. There is a mosque or a church or a temple. And those faith leaders do provide religious and spiritual services to the people, talking to their hearts and mobilizing faith-based actions based on their sacred scripts and teachings. So this is the outreach. And of course, there are faith-based organizations working in local communities for centuries and have been providing socioeconomic support for local communities. And the second power is the economic power of faith-based organizations. Just look at how many churches there are in the world, more than 40 million churches or 6 million mosques or countless number of temples. But also they have an investment power and they deal with billions of dollars on an annual basis in investment. So these investments would need to be investing in sustainable development. So from that perspective, the United Nations Environment Program thought of launching the Faith for Earth initiative to mobilize those powers in support of the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. And we have been working with different religions from different regions and different backgrounds to engage them in the policy making. We're, we're not just using faith leaders for advocacy purposes, not at all. We are engaging them on policy or in policy dialogue and providing them with a platform to influence the decision-making system of the environmental governance, the international environmental governance of the environment. For the listener, as we know, in this past summer alone, we've been talking about climate change and degradation and a changing context globally. 
for years now, but this past summer or winter, depending on where you are on the planet, that's really come home. We've seen fires and storms of unprecedented force and capacity, droughts and floods, among others that we would name. And at the same time, we also, it seems to me in our conversation, have a number of very important international convenings that are taking place this fall. So on the one hand, we have climate devastation. On the other hand, we have a real opportunity to address some of these. In your own words, can you tell us about some of these convenings and their importance for the listener, including your conversation or visit that will take place on October 4th to the Vatican, where you'll be meeting with Pope Francis and other officials there around faith and science and the road to COP26? Well, indeed, Michael, the last 10 years, the last decade have been proven by science with evidence that it has been the hottest decade since records have started. And of course, according to scientists, they can measure the temperatures even centuries ago. And this is an indication of the role of humans in affecting the climate patterns. But also, and that is reflected in the uh, Governmental Panel on Climate Change report that was launched a couple of weeks ago, putting a stark reality that we are facing a tremendous challenge that we have less than seven years to get to a point where we have increased the Earth temperature by 1.5 degrees. And that will have drastic and unrecoverable impacts on the natural resources of Earth and, of course, on humans as well. There has also been other reports from the IBES, which is the Biodiversity Scientific Committee, putting also facts that we are facing the risk of the extension of 1 million species out of the 7.6 million species that we have currently on Earth. And humans are only one species out of all of that. Mm. Now, in addition to that, we have seen pollution is increasing. For example, at the global level, more than 40% of the food that we produce goes to landfills without being treated or recycled. While at the same time, we have around 1 billion people are actually facing hunger and don't have access to food. So all of that makes the international community to think of what can we do and how can we get together to address all of these issues. So this year, 2021, is a really critical year for all of these issues to be discussed. And we started early this year in February by holding the United Nations Environment Assembly which we call 5.1, the first session of the Assembly. The Assembly is the environmental parliament of the world, where decision makers, ministers of environment, heads of states, and so on, meet to adopt decisions and resolutions on environmental policy addressing different issues. And then this year, and this fall specifically, we will uh, have the Summit on Food Systems. We will have the convention of the parties of climate change, which is called COP26. Again, the convention of the parties on biodiversity. We will have, of course, the General Assembly is being held today for two weeks. 
and many other international conventions being held. The aim and the purpose of all of these conventions is actually to bring the international community together to put practical commitments to deal with these challenges that we are facing. One of them is on climate change, and you mentioned COP26 and what is the religious or the role of religions in that. Indeed, over the past several months, we have been working with the governments of the UK and Italy as UK as the current host of COP26 and Italy will be hosting COP27 and working with the Holy See and the Vatican in bringing most of the religions known to us today and at the highest level to discuss the role of religious leaders in addressing climate change issues and how the interfaith community at the global level can contribute by making commitments from a religious perspective and from faith-based organizations to contribute to reducing the impacts of climate change. So all of these faith and religious leaders will be meeting at the Vatican on the 4th of October and will be launching an appeal and will be submitting that appeal to the president of COP26, highlighting our concerns as an interfaith community and our call for action by governments and indeed asking for higher levels of commitment and aspirations, but as well telling the international community what the faith community can do to contribute to the reduction of the impact of climate change. I think you're referring as well to a phrase you and I have discussed, religious multilateralism. I'd like to ask you a question about that. Last night was the eve of Yom Kippur on the eve before this recording where Jews around the world gather together for a tradition dating back to the 8th century where they hear the Kol Nedri, a beautiful and inspiring chant. It literally means all vows. The prayer begins with an expression of repentance for all unfulfilled vows, oaths, and promises made to God during the year. It's a spiritual preparation for atonement in the spirit you just identified. It's a reminder of unfinished work, atoning for unfinished work. Every religion of some kind has a ritual, some kind of this, I should say, in the next seven years in order to accomplish the kind of or address the fundamental shift into a low carbon world or to avert climate catastrophe. As you think about these meetings coming up, in particular, your meeting at the Vatican, what's the unfinished work of religious multilateralism? What is the work to be done together that you envision that must be in front of all of us today? Well, indeed, it is very important that we recognize that we live on one earth, one planet. We cannot isolate ourselves from living with others of other backgrounds and other beliefs and so on. And it is for the ordinary person when you ask them, can you breathe a different air than the air that is being breathed by others? Or can you eat differently or drink from a different source of water and so on? Of course, they all agree that we drink and breathe the same air and the same water and eat the same food. We face the consequences of climate change together. So if there is a drought in a country, it does not differentiate between a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu or a Buddhist. The drought will affect all of us. 
So we are interconnected in the challenges we are facing. So we need to be interconnected in the solutions we provide and in the approaches that we take together. There have been some approaches and some efforts by individual faiths mobilizing their constituencies around, you know, living in harmony with nature and so on. But the work that is unfinished is how can we come together? We are not asking people to believe in a new religion that is called a global religion that everybody has to submit to. We are saying, use your own beliefs and your own spiritual standards and values. Because all of them, if you look at all religions and only look from an environmental perspective, all of them, they address the issue of living in harmony with nature, whether it is Islam, whether it is Buddhism or Shintoism or what have you. Every religion relates to humans living in harmony with nature. And indeed, on everything else, if governments, if stakeholders, if businesses do not come together, there is a story. Uh, One old man asked each of his sons to break a stick, and they easily broke it. But he gave them a dozen of sticks together to break. And none of them could break those sticks together. And again, this is multilateralism. We need to come together. We need to have a unified message on our the importance of employing and accepting our religious values as the ethical standards that we use to deal with environmental issues and even social and economic issues. Because also religions talk about how you deal in business transactions, that you have to serve the community, that it is for the support of the common good and not the individual interests and greed of individuals and so on. So what we need to do together is to uphold these common principles in living in harmony with nature basing or relying on our own individual belief systems. I want to ask you a couple of questions about how we instrumentalize working in harmony with one another in very collaborative ways. The first with regard to biodiversity and the second with respect to a forthcoming document from the Muslim community. But before both of those, I just want to pause and ask this question about a recent report that's come out this past week on youth and on the younger demographic around the world. And there's a disturbing trend around their ambivalence, a sense of perhaps, you know, why should I get involved in a response to a degrading climate? Because it feels like anything I have to do really won't make much of a contribution toward a greater end. That's a disturbing trend. I think it's too early to know precisely how predictable that demographic is across cultures or really across society. But noting it already should be a concern for all of us as we think about kind of multilateral effort, because after all, those youth are in our communities are going to be the ones that are leading both today and tomorrow. What's your response to these kinds of reports we're hearing of? Well, I mean, let's imagine that we are on a ship all together. Humanity is on a ship. 
and there is a hole in the ship and water is coming into the ship, eventually it will drown and eventually all of us will lose our lives. So nobody can look at the hole and say, well, it's not my responsibility. There's a, a pilot, there's a sailor, there's a captain who should close that hole. And this is indeed what's happening here. We cannot say it's not my responsibility. It's the responsibility of those who contributed to this state of affairs. It is the responsibility of the old generation who have overconsumed our natural resources for their economic prosperity and so on. And so we are facing something that they have to deal with. But we are living together. I mean, young people, the old generation and so on. But in, in fact, we are seeing tremendous engagement of young people in dealing and contributing to finding solutions. Now, you asked about how institutionally, how systematically can we do this? Indeed, there are a number of faith-specific organizations getting together or interfaith organizations bringing different religions to work together in addressing these issues. One of them is the Faith for Earth initiative that we have talked about as part of UNIP. The uniqueness of Faith for Earth is that it is part of the UN organization that is responsible for monitoring and putting the policies related to the environmental component of sustainable development at the international level and adopting, of course, the decisions and resolutions. So we provide a platform for all of the players to come together and pressure decision makers, provide scientific or practical examples of how traditional knowledge, indigenous knowledge can contribute to finding nature-based solutions. Part of our work is establishing the Faith for Earth Coalition, which has four councils. Two of them are important in my perspective. The first one is the Council of Eminent Faith Leaders. That is the highest level faith leaders of all religions coming together and sending a unified message on environmental responsibility and living with nature. And of course, they provide the wisdom, the spiritual knowledge, the institutional, historical, traditional knowledge, but also the council of youth faith leaders, our young faith leaders. Why this connection is important? We want to bring up a young generation that is inspired by the spiritual leaders of today but also equip them with the scientific knowledge and know-how and evidence so they can lead their religious communities with and equipped with the knowledge that they need to link the spiritual teachings with the challenges that we are facing today. So we are launching this youth council at the global, regional, but also at the national levels. We're going to be mobilizing massive amount of young people to get together and do actions on the ground, whether promoting the use of sustainable sources of energy, whether doing cleanup campaigns of water sources or streams, or coming up with innovative ideas to solve local challenges uh, that we are facing and provide better um, future 
perspectives for the local communities to improve their livelihoods. I want the listener to know at the end of this presentation, there will be a number of links where you can go and learn more information about many of the things that Iyad is mentioning today. For the moment, let me continue in terms of religious multilateralism. Yesterday, the World Bank reported that every day the world awakens to news of another heat wave, flood, drought, tropical cyclone, wildfire, or more. And it goes to note that most of us are living in urban contexts, cities of a particular concern. When we look at 78% of the world's energy produces more than 70% of the greenhouse gas emissions in these contexts in cities. What the report seems to say is that cities grow and animal life diminishes and flora and fauna life diminishes. At the same time, carbon storage is prevented and it accelerates climate change, making it an imperative to handle climate biodiversity. And you mentioned this in terms of the conversation taking place in November. What do you think are some of the breakthroughs on biodiversity in this conversation that we're hoping for this fall that could inform local to international efforts around religious multilateralism, work we might do in our cities, for instance. Michael, in the year 2010, the global community agreed that we need a global biodiversity agenda. And they agreed to what is called the biodiversity agenda or the decade on biodiversity. Unfortunately, over the past 10 years, well, little has been achieved from that agenda, but none of the targets that were approved have been achieved, improving biodiversity and reducing impacts and, and so on. So over the past couple of years, the international community have been meeting and have agreed that we need to have a more ambitious and target-oriented biodiversity agenda. So this autumn in COP15 on biodiversity, the international community will be meeting to adopt and discuss and agree on what is called the post-2020 agenda for biodiversity. It is a framework of action that is required to address the different issues that are related to biodiversity. For example, we have ecosystems that are untouched yet. However, with urbanization, as you mentioned, we will be infringing on those areas. So we will be reducing, if we continue at the pace and and the expansion that we have, we will continue infringing on those untouched tree ecosystems. We are facing a challenge of, as I mentioned, the extension of species. Those species are not only species of wildlife. They are species that are necessary for our food systems. So if we continue expansion, urban expansion, and using lands to produce food, for example, then we will be reducing or putting into risk of extension of biodiversity elements that are required for our food systems and so on. The destruction of forests that are taking place on a daily basis and the area of similar the size of Italy is being lost every single year because of deforestation. 
And why does deforestation happen? Because people are looking for farm areas, whether it is for cattle or whether it is to plant oil farms to produce oil and, and so on. So we need to think about food systems that provide food for everybody, but at the same time, do not destroy the biodiversity that we have. So the COP2015 and as very much related to it, the Food Systems Summit will be discussing frameworks for the 10 coming years. It happens that also this year, UNEP and FAO, the United Nations Environment Programme, and the Food and Agriculture Organization have launched what we call the Decade of Ecosystem Restoration. So we have put a plan of action for the next 10 years to tackle the loss of ecosystems, not only prevent, but also restore degraded ecosystems and regenerate ecosystems that have already been degraded. So you see, there are so much happening out there. But in fact, what we need is that we come back to our value systems. Because even if you have the best policies, even if you have the best conventions and so on, if there are no serious individual and communal commitments, public commitments, to the implementation of these conventions and these agreements and so on, we will not achieve those targets, not by the time that we are given. And we mentioned that the IPCC report gives us seven years to manage within 1.5 degrees. Even if we do that, we will continue, as according to the report, to face climate change challenges until the end of the century. And if we continue the pace of destruction of ecosystems and contributing to increasing emissions, we don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be really a drastic change that future generations will not remember us as the generation who has tried, but the generation who has failed future generations. Even more reason to have guiding leaders and documents from across communities, including the religious and spiritual communities, who are providing wisdom and insight, and not just to inspire, really, in some ethereal way, but to give us a sense of the direction forward in very practical and pragmatic ways. I think of, for instance, Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, Care for a Common Home, which was released in 2015. It made significant contributions, not just to religious leaders, but also to local communities and municipalities as they thought about their connection to the natural environment around them. The same is true for a document that's coming out that you are deeply involved in, the Almazana Covenant for Earth, as a restatement of principles. It seems to me, and I'm hoping you'll tell us more about this document, you'll be delivering this, as I understand, on October 5th when you meet with Pope Francis. It seems to me that both these documents, Laudato Si and Almizan, have something in them that is restorative, to your last point. There's something restorative about what it asks of us to be and to do, and to do that not in isolation, but effectively together. Definitely. And the vision of Pope Francis and all of his team in 2015, when Laudato Si was launched, I mean, it's a huge contribution to humanity. It really relates the spiritual values of Christians as included in the Bible, the script, the sacred script for the Christians, 
and talking about the different aspects of relating to nature provides the what we said the moral the spiritual the value the ethical system for not only individual behaviors but institutional behavior as well so it did contribute and it is mobilizing massive amount of people behind laudato si and of course we know that christianity represents 30% of the global population similarly 1. 6 to 1.8 billion muslims more than 28% of the human population do have a set of references mainly the quran and the hadith which is the practices of prophet muhammad dealing and there are more than 450 references to nature and natural resources in the holy quran and it does tackle all of the environmental challenges that we are facing today even economic and social challenges so the islamic council of ministers of the environment met in 2019 and they adopted a strategy for the engagement of religious actors on environmental issues and during that meeting they have requested unep to support and facilitate bringing together islamic scholars to put an outlook a covenant a charter based on islamic principles tackling the contemporary environmental issues of course there in the past have been many attempts to write about environment and islam you know climate change and islam but there has been not one comprehensive document that refers or reflects on the challenges that we are facing today relate them to islamic teachings and put forward suggested actions so over the past few months we have been working with islamic scholars representing the different islamic sects the different regions of the world and so on to put together this covenant the almizan and we have just finished few weeks ago with the draft and now the draft has been submitted to more than 250 institutions whether islamic or non-islamic but having to do with islam for review because there is a principle in islam called the consultative principle which is al-shura which asks all muslims if they want to take a decision they have to consult about it so it's a consultative process to bring the different perspectives from different peoples around the world to come up with this important document now the document will be submitted for endorsement by the council of ministers of environment of the islamic nations but also it will not stop at the document we are envisaging a movement we call it the almizan movement to establish for example an academy for islamic studies and the environment to establish a council of young muslim leaders to put together educational resources and so on so forth i mean create a trust fund to support local action by muslims in contributing to environmental sustainability so it's going to be similar to laudato si movement from an islamic perspective and we are hoping actually we have started the discussions with the hindus representing 1 billion people on earth to have a similar document from a hindu perspective and this will bring most more or less 
8% of the international community or the population of, on earth to relate to their spiritual values in dealing with the issues that we are facing today. As the listeners paying attention, you're probably well aware now that the environmental crisis is, at least in my estimation, and I imagine also in yours, Iyad, a spiritual crisis first. We require a restoration of our soul and of our moral accountability to ourselves, to our communities, and of course, to the environment, the climate all around us for that deeper kind of Al-Shura, as you mentioned, at the consultative process that's so essential in local communities. I'm wishing you all the best in your work with the Al-Nizan as a movement, not just a document, as you identified. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you very much, Michael. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the Center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.